0: (laughs) Thank you for joining, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so pleased that you're here. I'm not sure if I should tell this to you. sure I'm not sure if I really know what's going on here I think I do but I'm not sure I suppose you give me an A for honesty what Rabbeinu B'chaya shares with us now for me was very very confusing I'm going to tell you why I'm going to tell you why and I'm going to tell you how I resolved it or or why I think it isn't such a problem or how we can possibly understand his words. But I just want to make that disclaimer that I don't know if I know Pshat. I don't know with any kind of certainty. I I hope I know. I hope I'm saying right (laughs) Pshat. I don't know. This is um, it's very challenging material. I hope I didn't dissuade you from watching. All right, as the name or title of our classes, with best of intentions, I am going to try and share with you the illuminated teachings of the great Arbeno Baha'i, Ben Yosef ibn Bakuda, with the best of intentions. My intention is to enrich your life along with mine as we continue to develop an understanding of what Betochen means so that we can work on developing an attitude and persona that is framed, rooted, and saturated with the uplifting, inspiring, and empowering energy of betochen, of pure trust in Hashem. My friends, it is possible. I didn't say easy. It is possible to live a tranquil life. It is possible to live with no anxiety whatsoever. It is possible for us to be able to be at peace with nary a worry. Now, many people worry about sustenance, parnasa. How will they be able to provide for their loved ones? We've dealt with that in great detail. We've already learned the strategy to being able to rid yourself of those anxieties. And we have learned that by employing the powers of betochen, of trust, not only will you be rid of anxieties, you'll actually bring those blessings. You'll actually usher in the prosperity you seek. What about relationships? So many people are anxious because of relationships. They're anxious or afraid of their boss. Anxious or uncomfortable from others. Betochen is supposed to give us an inner sense of tranquility on every level. It must be noted that applying Betochen to things like parnasa is not at all the same as applying bitochen to the areas of relationship we've already learned that it is possible that a person will not have the privilege of good relationships a person may be a loner that's not a cause for mourning or sadness you just have to learn how to cope and appreciate the values and virtues of that circumstance. Then we began to speak about somebody who has the privilege of a loving family. We didn't get to your social network. That's in a future episode. We're in the midst of trying to understand how to deal with family. First and foremost, one's spouse and one's children. In the previous episode, The Family Guy, we talked a lot about intentions talked a lot about the way you're supposed to view the members of your family and why you should choose to provide for them. In today's episode, we're going to talk about, you guessed it, the best intentions. What are they? What are the best intentions? I'm going to begin by reiterating some of what we've learned previously. So we have clarity and know what are the best intentions. But this will lead us into a very interesting place. Where Rabbeinu B'chayi goes on to say that if you provide for your family, this is the currency of the relationship that you enjoy with your spouse or with your children. If you provide for your family's needs, with the wrong intentions, you will never be happy. You will never have satisfaction. And you won't even be rewarded for it in the world to come. And that's something I found entirely perplexing. Because Judaism doesn't focus on intentions only. In fact, by and large, Judaism places tremendous emphasis on actions taken rather than the meditation of heart, mind, the intentions that accompany those actions. So this was a real mystery for me, and I'll show you why. I'll quote from a variety of sources that I've pulled together. And I'm going to tell you what I think may possibly be the resolution to that question. Lastly, Rabena B'chaya ends with a quote. The quote is introduced to prove something about the world to come. But in fact, it only speaks about the present reality. I found it really hard to understand how Rabena Bahaya would prove A by bringing a verse that demonstrates B. And this, too, I have a possible resolution for that I I'd like to share with you. And uh, hopefully, when we're finished all this, we'll have a really good understanding of why it's so important to have the best intentions and how you and I together can find our lives uplifted, enhanced, and enriched with Betochen punctuating our relationships. All right. I've told you what we're going to do now. Welcome to those who have signed on and said hi. If you're on Facebook, please hop onto YouTube because uh, that way I'll actually be watching the comments. And the last thing I wanna say to those who are already on is if you have a question that's relevant, please post it on the live chat and I will periodically look at at the screen and I will do my best with Hashem's help to try and answer. If you're still with me, I thank you. If you're just joining, fantastic. You can watch the recording afterwards to know what we're about to do. I've laid out the table of contents. Let's get right into it. As mentioned, the first order of business, the first thing we're going to talk about is the intentions, the best intentions. So what are the intentions? I'm going to repeat some of what we learned in the previous episode, but really... A lot of this will be new. So in the previous episode, we identified the appropriate intentions. What are they? Well, the first thing we learned about is that a person should try his very best to discharge his obligations towards his spouse, children, etc., to fulfill their desires, and uh, you should do so with sincerity. So you can ask so, what's the intention? And the answer is that is the intention. The intention is that he should do so to discharge his obligations, obligations to Hashem, that is. Now at the very end of what we learned previously, Rabbeinu Bachaya rounds it off after talking about the mitzvah of loving our fellow and the negative commandment not to harbor any animosity or acrimony in our hearts. Mm -hmm. So he kind of re-emphasizes what he spoke about prior and he says we should not try and provide for our family with an ulterior motive. He says it shouldn't be le-yachil ha gemul You shouldn't be doing this because I expect reciprocity. They're going to give me back whatever I give them. I provide for my spouse, my spouse is going to provide for me. I'm nice to my children. They'll choose me a nice old age. That's a euphemism and a joke, but you know what I mean. So he says, that's not what it's about. It's not an order to pay it forward, if you will. Or we'll make them indebted to you. A person shouldn't do it because he wants honor. Kvodam because he wants shivham, He wants to be praised and spoken of in glowing terms. Not in order to exercise control over others. It's a terrible part of the human condition, an awful dark part of our personas. We try to control things, others. not good. Hashem is in control. <laughs> we have responsibilities trying to control others, coerce others. It's a terrible thing. So that's not what it's about. What's it about? It's about Lakaya Mitzvah It's about fulfilling the instructions, the commandments we have from God. The Pas Lechem notes that Rabbeinu B'Chaya finishes off Really with three terms, three descriptions as to why we should provide for our family. Number one, he says, Lekayem to fulfill the will of the Creator, the commandment of the Creator. Number two, he says, Lishmor Brito, to honor his covenant. That's God's covenant. And ufikudov aleihem. And then he adds and his directive regarding them. I once spoke to a, a person that I have some respect for. He taught shara at some point. So I said to him, I understand that you taught the shara B'Tochem. I'm trying to teach it now. Can I ask you a question? He said, sure. And I said, you know, Sometimes I find his verbiage to be redundant, like he'll say the same thing, it seems, two or three times. And he said to me, ah, that's just like, you know, that's the way they spoke in medieval times. And I said, "Uh, yeah, I'm afraid I can't accept that. That's not the way we study Torah, my friends. Paul Bloom of University of Chicago, he coined the phrase, in the last century in academia, of the art of treating a text charitably. He he pioneers this idea of treating text charitably. That is to say, I don't make the assumption that whatever, it's like, let's not sweat the details, I get the basic point, but rather treat the text charitably, treat the author charitably. If he used specific frames, expressions, sentence structure, There was a reason for it. Professor Bloom, of course, studied in Yeshiva University as a a teenager and in his early 20s, and he learned Gemara. Very brilliant man from the University of Chicago. Very, very brilliant professor. I think he's an anthropologist, but (laughs) he learned Gemara. And when you learn Torah, whether it's the words of the Mishnah, the Gemara, the writings of the Rishonim, or even the Great Akronim, you learn that nothing in Torah is superfluous that these were people of tremendous insight and inspiration. And if we are to appreciate the true message being conveyed, we will have to be precise in understanding of, by virtue of analyzing, understanding every word that they said. Rabbeinu Bechayet didn't choose extra words. I don't believe that Abiyib bin be Yehuda ibn Tibbon played games, flowered things up in poetic Hebrew. By the way, I'm not the only one. Many, many great rabbis from the 16th, 17th, 18th century who wrote commentary uh-huh. on the Shara B'Tochan treated this text with the greatest reverence and charity. So the Pas Lechem, say, 18th century sage. He's one of those people who wrote commentary on the Shara Achim, and I've shared the Pas Lechem's insights and annotations many, many times with you. I think he's most—he's the one who analyzes the seeming redundancies most, and of course he maintains that's impossible. There are no redundancies; there are different messages. So he says, the Paslechim says that Abe Bakhaya here is Perat Sholish Chalukais. He actually has enumerated three different segments. Three segments. And the three segments, he says, address three different dimensions. Al haha tovo. Tov is a noun. It means good. Ha, ha is a different form of a noun, but it's the good, or the good being proffered. But it's also a noun form. Al ha, ha lohem on being good, being good to your family. He wrote, "You should be good to your family, not because your family will be good to you. You should be good to your family." L'chayim mitzvahs habora. That's segment A, to fulfill a mitzvah. Everything we do in life should be to fulfill God's mitzvahs. So he says, I'm doing good things. I'm doing it l'chayim mitzvahs habora. Now Rabbeinu Bechaya also said, not only you should do good, but you must make every effort not to do the opposite. The yirif Yodai Mahazakosam was the words as we found them in the previous episode. Restrain your hand from causing damage. And as we learned in the previous episode, this is not only about a person not abusing physically, God forbid, the members of the family. It means you shouldn't be the cause of damage. How often can a parent say something, or not say something, and do irreparable damage? I won't say with the best of intentions. I'll say with no intentions. Just didn't think. But you should think. I have to think. We have to be, as they say, on top of our game, especially with our children. There was a great Rosh Shiva in the non-chabad, I guess you would call it the Litvish world. His name is Rav Kutner. He's an extraordinary man. He's uh, one of the post-war Torah greats in the United States. Rav uh, Yitzchak had a, a friendship with the Rebbe, a personal relationship with the Rebbe. In fact, he used to walk in the 1940s from Williamsburg, which was about a 45-minute or an hour a walk, hours walk away Shabbos morning, maybe even more. He would walk an hour to learn Lekut HaTor with the Rebbe. They had a Chavrus on Shabbos morning. So somebody once asked Rav Hutner, he said, how did you become so great in Torah? He was so great. He was a man. man his very being radiated Torah. His knowledge, his insight was extraordinary. And he said it all happened from one supper table. And they said one supper table? Really? What did they serve? And he said I was a little boy and I came home from Cheder and I told my mother excitedly we just finished Sefer Bereshit We finished the first book of the Torah. You know, little children, a cheder. He finished the first book of the Torah. And he was very excited. And then he went out to play in the yard. This is in Ashtetl, somewhere in Lithuania. He said he came back later for dinner, and he noticed there was a white tablecloth, and there were candles burning at the table. Now, if you know how a Jewish home functions, that's like a sign of Shabbat or Yom Tov. White, white tablecloth, candles. He said, Mama, wh- what is this? What kind of Yom Tov is today? And she looked at him and she said, My Yitzchak, didn't you tell me you made a siyum, your first siyum, you completed the book of Bereshus? And she said, for your father and I, this is a Yom Tov. Rav Hudna said, that those words made such an impact on him that subconsciously Torah became the most important thing at that moment. Could his mother have known? She was a pious woman. She wanted, clearly, to convey a message to her son. Could she have known who her son would become? Could she have understood what an impact that would have? These are beautiful stories, nice stories of how a word, a nuance, a gesture makes a world of difference. And then there are less comfortable stories to hear. About a parent who didn't react. About a person who dismissed something. And cut deeply. And hurt a child. So these are serious things serious things we have a serious responsibility Rabbeinu B'chayi says you have to be careful not to cause damage it doesn't just mean to hold withhold your hand from physically striking chas that's not what we're talking about So Rabbeinu Bechayah, who, who understood the, the profundity of causing damage, he now says, Velishmo brito. Lishmo brito means to, to keep his covenant. So wh- what is that? What's his covenant? What, co- what covenant? So the Paslechem says something very interesting. He says a Brit, a covenant, is always a mechanism that is designed to protect from damage, that is. And he brings a number of examples. He says the word Brit is used in Torah literature, al Shlilat HaHezek, not on doing good, but on restraining or refraining from harming. He says, for example, where's the first time a Brit, a covenant, shows up? And the answer, of course, is with Noah. Genesis 9. In verse 11, God says to Noah that I'm going to make a covenant with you. The sign of the covenant is the rainbow, but that's a subject for A different class, why the rainbow is meaningful. Actually, if you go to my website by Capital.TV and you search it up, I gave at least two classes, maybe three, on the rainbow. And why that's a sign. Isn't it a natural phenomenon? But be that as it may, it's a covenant. It's called a Brit. And the point of a Brit is that it it enables Noah to be relaxed. Because God is committing not to making another mabel. It's not a covenant in which he says, Noach, I will provide you with Parnassah. I'm going to give you sustenance. Noach, I'm going to give you good health. I make you a covenant. He says, Noach, I will not bring another destructive flood that will destroy the whole world. I will never again destroy or liberate all life. He says another example we have in something which is far less harmful but nonetheless it's used in the terms of not a promise of non-repetition but a promise of it not happening to begin with. So there's the two protagonists in this story are Yaakov and and Lovan, Father Jacob and his father-in-law Laban. Very bad man. And Laban alights after Yaakov and he catches up to him and he, they have this uh, terrible uh, confrontation. And afterwards, they make a piece of sorts and they hurl a rock. They, they, they take this huge boulder and they throw it upright, kind of set up this monument. And they say, this is going to be our covenant. And they say, Al <laughs> Re'ehu let us both commit we will not pass this point with baleful intent, with intention to harm. And our sages point out, Rashi quotes us there, that you can't cross this imaginary border or this monument to harm, but you can make profit, you can do business, you can come visit, but you can't do it to harm. So what is it about? It's about refraining from coming with baleful intent. So the first one is, I won't repeat. God makes a covenant. I, I, I did this. I won't do it again. Second here is no, nobody did anything yet. But we won't to begin with. And then he says the third example is with regard to Yaakov Avinu's father, Yitzhak Avinu. And he has a confrontation with the monarch of the day whose name is Avimelech. And Avimelech and Yitzhak have this powwow. They smoke a peace pipe. You know, proverbially. And they say, They make this covenant. And the covenant is about not doing any kind of negative thing. Now, the truth is that, that, that you know, Avimelech forced Yitzchak out of town. He ran him out of town, but they weren't actually locking horns. So it's, it's, it's even less of a, a threat. And they're talking about future generations. Yaakov says to Lovat, I won't come across to harm you. You won't come across to harm me. Yitzchak is making a promise for future generations. It's, it's, it's a much like, kind of distant concern. I think that's why he goes third. That's why the Apostlechah puts it in this order. And he says he makes that commitment. But the common denominator of all three, whether it's God's covenant with Noach, or Lovan and Yaakov's non-aggression pact, or Yitzchak and Avimelech's futuristic Non aggression pact is the common denominator is we won't do bad things. So the Paslechem says the first thing is Lakayim Mitzvah Sabbara that speaks about haha tova, doing good things for your loved ones. That's the right intention. Do good things for your loved ones. Be kind, be generous, provide because God tells you to. After all, a, a man has obligations towards his wife. <laughs> a man has 10 obligations, according to my Manonis Rambam. And three are biblical and seven are rabbinic. And withholding the basics from your wife, according to Rambam, is a violation of a biblical mitzvah. These are three things that the Torah mandates. Every husband has an obligation, a sacred duty to his wife. He has to provide her food. He has to provide her clothing, and he has to satisfy her in the intimate area of life. And if he refrains, he withholds food. Chas v'shalom says, "You ate enough, honey. Starve yourself for a day, in order to cause her pain." Not that he's taking away his wife as a diabetic. God forbid, he's hiding the cakes. His wife shouldn't make herself sick. He's doing it to cause his wife pain. Yes, there are such sick men. He has money. He can buy his wife new clothing. And he says, I'll show her. She burned my dinner. I'm not going to give her money. I'm going to re- withhold the funds. I'm going to wear a tattered blouse. And then she'll learn who, who's boss around here. Obviously, I'm using demented expressions. But you get, you get the, the, the idea. So if you do that, or if a, if a man, God forbid, says, I'm angry at my wife. She did A, B, and C. I'm not going to provide her with her intimate needs. I'm not going to. I know she wants it. I'm not going to. And he does it despite her. He actually violates the mitzvah in the Torah. It's an actual, it's according to the Rambamitz mitzvah, the should base mitzvah, 212 of the mitzvahs, it's an actual mitzvah of the Torah. So that's, that's what he's talking about. Providing for one's children is an actual mitzvah. It's, it's a sacred duty. It's a responsibility Imagine a father and mother say, oh, you're hungry? <laughs> kids, knock yourself out, kids. Be hungry a little. That'll, that should teach you. In, in the modern vernacular, we call it the child abuse. So this is the things that we have to do because we should do them because we want to be mekayim, we want to fulfill mitzvah sabayr. We should not do things to cause harm or emotional trauma or pain or suffering because we have a Brit there's a covenant and finally there's there's the directives regarding them what, is this, what does this mean well the Paslechem says an example of this can be found in Deuteronomy 11 where it says this is in the Shema you should teach them whose job is it to educate a child? It's the job of the parents. And if the parents don't educate their children, whose instructions are they ignoring? God's instructions. So if a parent willfully chooses to withhold important Yiddishkeit information, from his or her child. If a parent doesn't give the child the education, the exposure that they require, they're violating the directive that Hashem gave them. You know, one of the beautiful expressions that we were privileged to hear from the Rebbe was when the Rebbe spoke about children. They had this unique way of of framing the relationship between parents and children. People say, they're my children. I can do as I please with them. My children. Rebbe found that offensive. He used to say, God's children. We are the privileged, we're given the privilege to take care of Hashem's children. By the way, abuse is not a privilege we were given, even if you're an abusive person. We have no right to abuse our children, we have an obligation, and we are instructed to provide for our children and to give our children a proper education. So these are things that are, that's Hashem's word to us. We see this also with a mitzvah in the Torah which is found in Leviticus 19. This is just Two verses before the famous Pasuk via hafta actually one verse before. It says, Es Amisecha. You will surely rebuke your fellow. That's Leviticus 19, verse 17, and Hafta verse 18. So why would I rebuke? Because I care. And because I'm supposed to. By the way, it's much easier not to say anything. Why bother? Why say, let him knock himself out. Take yourself into a bad place. It's your problem, not mine. But a Torah Jew says, I'm obligated. I have instructions. I got directives. My directives say, from God, that your business is my business. And that I am my brother's keeper. Or as it says in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, there's b'nei their children they shall teach. And you know, the Gemara tells us that it's a responsibility of parents to teach their children how to swim. Because it's a very bad thing if you end up in the water and you can't swim. I, th- I think that could like ruin your whole day or something. That's, that's not good. But it's not something that costs any money. You don't need any equipment. You just need to be able to, to swim. And people never know when they'll end up in water. So it's a responsibility we have. Quite literally. Isaiah Diallo Vashorim, my maternal grandfather, Ramach, told me that his first public speech when he was 16 years old, was the previous Rebbe, was 17 years old, said that we have to go and speak in in, in different shoals and tell people to give their children a Torah education. So he told me, he remembers his first speech was that he talked about this Gemara of and he says, every single father is obligated to teach his children to swim in the sea of Talmud. It's a homily. So these are the motivations. This is the right intentions. The intentions are to fulfill Hashem's mitzvahs, meaning the things that we are obligated to do. Obligations are identifiable things. A, a mitzvah that's obligatory has an actual measure. This, like, like a specific instruction. You have to do A, B, C, or D. If your mitzvah is to eat matzah, you have to eat a certain amount of matzah in a certain amount of time. And matzah, of course, has its definitions. If your mitzvah is to hear the sound of the shofar, then we have to know what a shofar is and isn't, and what is considered to be the sound of the shofar, and is there an order in which I have to hear those sounds? So those are mitzvahs. Then there are directives. Directives that are saying, I want you to take care of your little brother, said the parents to the big brother as they were going to summer camp. What does it mean, take care? You know what it means. I want you to to look out for him. I I want you to be mindful So it's not really a mitzvah. It's not a commandment. It's not a specific instruction. It's a general directive. And that's, I think, the difference. That the first things are specific obligations. I have an obligation to feed my children. Yes, there's there's like halachic obligations. I have an obligation to provide to my wife. Those are basic obligations. Technical obligations. And then there's like, I need to be mindful of their welfare. I need to be careful that I'm doing what I have to do. So these are the these are the best intentions. So, first of all, this is, this is a novelty. It's a novelty because most people will say, what do you mean why I'm nice to my wife? Or why I treat my husband nicely? Because I love them. So I love them. I love my children. Who doesn't love his spouse? I mean, that's not good if you love your spouse. That's sad who doesn't love their children. But my dear friends, there is a mitzvah to love Hashem. There is a mitzvah to love every single member of Am Yisrael. There is no mitzvah to love your children. Gasp. There's no mitzvah. There's no mitzvah to love your parents. It's normal to love your children. A normal person loves his or her children. The Rambam and the Sefer wax on about the feelings between parents or children or at least the maternal instinct as being something that is found in animals just like in people. The paternal instinct is not found in animals. But the maternal instinct is. The one sarcastic person once put it to me. He says, when people put in the tombstone, loving mother, they're basically saying, my mother wasn't a wild animal. She was a normal animal, not a wild animal. It's a sarcastic, almost mean thing to say, but he had a point. He had a point. It's normal to love your children. It's normal to love your parents. It's normal. It's not obligatory. What is obligatory is to behave a certain way. So what should be the intention? Naturally, people do things because of reciprocity. That's why when Yosef HaTzadik is administered an oath by his father Jacob about taking care of his funeral arrangements, he says to him, I want you to do truth and kindness. The truest kindness. We call it Chesed chalemis. To bury somebody is chesed shalemas because when you are burying them, they will not be there to bury you back, so to speak. They're not going to be there. They can't. So it's the kindness we do without anticipation of reciprocity. It is perfectly normal and human for people to expect reciprocity. I'm nice to somebody, I expect them to be nice to me. If I do a favor for somebody and they refuse to do a favor for me, I get offended, I'm angry, why would you do that? By the way, you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to hold a grudge. You have to tell a person, I don't think it's very bad what you did, and I don't understand why you didn't do it, and that's it, and then move on. So it's normal, it's natural for a person to do things with an eye to reciprocity. Rebbeinah Bahaya comes along and says, it may be normal, it may be natural, it's not right. It's not right, that's not the best intention. You should do for your wife, for your husband, you should do for your children, because Hashem commanded you to. I'm serving God now. Because God made a bond. He made a bond with you. That you as a parent will not say things that will harm, hurt, or traumatize your child. You will protect your child from trauma. And of course from physical harm. And and even though it's not an easy thing, Hard to be mindful and easy to be mindless about things. And finally, you're gonna follow the directives. That's the best intention. So up until this point, I got no problem. It's, it's very interesting. It's a tall order. Rebbeim B'chaya has great expectations, as they say. Beseder, okay. That's interesting, and that and that's betochen. That's betachin. Betachin means I'm doing this with a sense of duty, a sense of trust to Hashem. So here betachin is defined not as certitude that God will provide, but that I need to be duty-bound and fulfill my duties. Place my trust in Hashem. That I'll do my best and that's all that can be expected of me. And I'm not going to second guess myself. And I'm not going to worry about it. I can only be the best parent I can be. And I can't be somebody else. But I really have to be myself. The best version of me. But then Rabbi B'chayah sets off in a direction. Which astounded me. This astounded me. This is new. We're breaking new ground now. A person. He's emphasizing the importance of having the right intentions. If you want to follow along inside, you've got to took, take a look in the... Um, let's see. Bottom of page 156 in the Kiant edition. A person who performs... Or responds to their requests. He's meeting his family's expectations. But he's doing it with ulterior intentions. The wrong intentions. He's having in mind. He's thinking of one of the things we talked about prior. That it'll be good for me. And they'll respond to me. And they'll give me. And they'll honor me and they'll glorify me, and they'll love me." He says, a person who does these things, Allah had in one of the ways that we have already enumerated, in other words, that he does it with an ulterior and selfish motive, Rebbeinah B'chayi says, oh, you're going to do the right thing with the wrong intentions? The right thing for the wrong reasons you should know you will never attain what you actually want. You will never achieve your desire, he says. You will labor, you will toil in vain. You will achieve nothing. Toil for nothing. And you will lose your reward in the world to come, them's fighting words. Wow. Very serious stuff here. The Paslechem was the only one who actually comments on this. He says, Nimsa comes out, Shayigah larik haza, that you toiled for naught in this world because your efforts did not bear fruit. You wanted honor, you didn't get honored. You wanted reciprocity, forget about it. Didn't happen you lost your reward in the world to come all this, why? because you didn't do it for heaven's sake you do not have the best best intentions read these words my head starts to explode I, I, I don't understand what's going on here since when? Our intentions so important. So much so that we say it's a waste. I remember the Gemara in Psachim, and I'll share it with you. The Gemara says it's on page fifty, side B. The Gemara says like this: Rev Yehuda taught. In the name of Rav. L'oilam literally means the world, or it could mean forever. Sometimes it means in every situation, regardless. As we say all the time. A person should involve himself in Torah and in mitzvot for the wrong reasons. For the wrong reasons? How could you do that? That's a terrible thing. You're doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. Relax, the Gemara says. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. And out of the wrong reasons, eventually you'll do it for the right reasons. That's what the Gemara says. So the Mufarsham discussed this. what, What does that mean? Does it mean that if you did it for the wrong reason, it's not a mitzvah? But if you do it for the wrong reason, eventually you'll do it for the right reason, and then it'll be a mitzvah. And the vast majority of the commentaries believe that even a mitzvah for the wrong reasons is still a mitzvah. It has value. It has value. So you're going to say, well... That's that's for like Torah mitzvahs. That's for God. It's for God. But we're talking interpersonal now. Interpersonal here, intentions make all the difference. Yeah, that doesn't pan out either. Because there's a Gemara in Erchin, and the Gemara on page 16, side B says like this: the Gemara is talking about interpersonal relationships. The things like And the Gemara has a question. And the question was asked of Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Shimon. Rebuke with the right intentions. Because I'm duty bound. Because God expects me to speak up when I see something being done inappropriately. Or another situation, another person says, me? Who am I to judge? Who am I to say anything to them? But that's shalei lishma. That's for the wrong reasons. You know exactly who you are, and you know that you have the right and the ability to speak up. You became humble suddenly. Why? For the wrong reasons. Because you don't want to put yourself in harm's way, because it's more convenient for you to look the other way and ignore—it's for ulterior, selfish motives. So the Gemara says, "Hey minayo adifa," which one's better? This is an interpersonal relationship thing. Gemara enerchad after Zion. Omar lay so the Gemara says "Valei made this don't you agree that a lishma adifa? do you not agree says Rabbi Shimon, that, that that was Rabbi Shimon, Pasi, maybe that a nova humility for the wrong reasons is better humility is the greatest trait any person could possibly possess so therefore Even if it's shalei l'shma, because of the tremendous virtue that's attached to humility, even if it's going to be insincere, ulterior motive-driven humility, but it's still humility, and humility is a tremendous thing. The Gemara, we just had a mesechas p'sachin. Because it's better to do the wrong thing Pardon me, the right thing. For the wrong reasons. Or without the best of intentions. In other words, there's value. There's value. So I'm asking myself, I don't understand. What is Abinu B'chayi saying here? What's he saying? He's saying that if I don't have the right intentions, that if I have a, a, anticipation of reciprocity for my wife and for my children, that I'm, I'm going to be wasting my time? I'm never going to get what I'm looking for. I'm not going to get any reward for being good and kind. A doting, considerate, sensitive father to my children is meaningless because I didn't do it for the right reasons. What does that say about the vast majority of people? I know that that has nothing to do with the facts, what the majority of people do or don't do. But still, I mean, like, realistically, Eidabachai is setting his bar very high, or so it seems. By the way, this idea is not just a, a Gemara. It's not just a Gemara. This Gemara is brought down in the Sefer Achinoch, this idea. The Sefer Achinoch, very interestingly, in Parsha's boy, it's about the mitzvah of don't break any bones, the Korban Pesach. Very hard to understand mitzvah. So, what's that about? So he says, it's all about respect for Hashem. It's about respect for Hashem's mitzvahs. He says, if you want to have respect, so they'll learn about the greatness of Hashem. Don't uh, eat steak without breaking bones. He says, that no, you don't understand. It's not just about thought. It's not just about the sentiments, awareness, consciousness. He says, no. A person is influenced by his actions. Da A person is affected in accordance with what he or she does. The liboy and one's emotions. The of and all of the thoughts, the consciousness, the awareness Cerebral awareness that we have. Achar It follows your path of action. Imtaive. Imra. If you're doing good things, you're in a good place. If you're doing khasfasholam bad things, you're in a bad place. It's as simple as that. Afilu rosha gomor. He takes this really far. The Art of Barcelona says, a wicked man, a bad man. a woman. In his heart. All he's thinking of is bad stuff. This is a person with a criminal mind. He's capricious, manipulative, cruel, selfish, mean-spirited. Throw in another half a dozen adjectives. Terrible person. If he has it and gets inspired. Some some spirit, he's impelled with a noble spirit. See therefore he focuses on doing good things, doing the right things. Even if he or she is doing the right and good things and he's doing it, not for the sake of heaven. He's doing it for his own selfish reasons. He perceives that if he'll do this, somebody will see him and he'll he'll obtain some kind of reciprocity in his own mind. He says, nonetheless, Says something amazing, u be yomit hayetzohara. By the power of those deeds, he will suffocate the spirit of evil within him. An amazing thing. The force of spirit that comes along with actions. Can actually destroy the spirit of force of the Etsahura. It's phenomenal. Because the heart follows the heart. The emotions follow how a person behaves. So you get it right there? He's talking about doing the right thing for the wrong reason. He says, this is a very good thing to do. And says, it's terrible. It's waste of time. Nothing will be accomplished. You say, well, that's, you know, it's nice. It's philosophy. It's not philosophy. It's halacha. The Rambam, towards the end of the book of Mada, the book of knowledge, the laws of what the world calls repentance, the laws of spiritual return, The Reconstitution of Spirit, Chapter 10, verse, uh, pardon me, Halacha, paragraph 5. A person who immerses, engages in the study of Torah in order to receive remuneration. Or, not because he expects to get something good, but he assumes that the Torah will shield him from things harmful. You He shouldn't have troubles, misfortunes come his way. Rambam says, you should know. That's not called for heaven's sake. It's not the best intentions. That's called Isak Shala Lishma. Kabal sachar a person who engages in Torah study, not because he's afraid that God's going to strike him or levels of protection will be removed from him. He doesn't do so because he is pursuing reward or divine remuneration. Because he loves God. Oh, now we have found the person with the best intentions. And the Rambam now quotes in halachic prose A person should involve himself in Torah even for the wrong reasons Doing it for the wrong reasons ultimately will bring you to do it for the right reasons And there is some value even in the right thing That's done for the wrong reasons pray tell what he's saying how is it possible how is it possible that a person who treats his spouse and children well without the best intentions is wasting his or her time is toiling for naught and will receive no reward how is that, how is that possible how does that fit with the rest of Yiddishkeit this was like blowing my head up I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't understand this. It's a big problem. So it must be, must be that this is, this is somehow different. Why, why would this be different? And that's why you need betachen over here. That's where you need to like, like trust Hashem because, um, only if you do this out of trust for Hashem, that's, that's when it's going to happen. That's when it's going to work. Otherwise, you're not going to get what you're looking for. So first of all, I don't have the answer. I don't, I don't know for sure if I know the answer. But I have a thought, a couple of thoughts I want to share with you. And these are, I, I think, very, very important. It's very important thoughts because... Because this is a big question. This is a question that really has to be understood. We have to figure this out. Rabbeinu B'chaya, without any doubt, is clearly, forcefully saying that uh, a husband or a father, I mean, he's using masculine terminology, so let's, let's be straight. You know? He's speaking to that husband or father who is nice to his wife, Provides for her and for his children generously, graciously, consistently, but he does it for the purpose that is self serving instead of God serving that this person is wasting his time. He will not get what he's looking for, and instead he doesn't even get a reward in the world to come. I mean, like, what does that mean? Why? I mean, one thing that's interesting to note is that in previous episodes, we talked about the lonely person. And we learned that, that having a family is a privilege. So God gives us, He's not obligated to give us relationship. We don't have the God-given right that we must have a relationship, we must have a spouse, we must have children. It's, it's, it's a gift. It's a privilege. Why does Hashem give us this privilege? Let's think of it this way. It's like this area of life, which is a privilege, ultimately seems to be the big test. The big test. Will we serve God for the right reasons? Or do we get swept up in doing nice things for our family without thinking about God at all? I asked a fellow a while back, he hadn't shown up show, since the whole COVID thing started. But he goes to other places, like, of course, going to work. So I said to him, when are you going to come home? Why wouldn't you come like I even said on a daily basis? Come for a half hour in the morning. Stay for a part of shachrit. Come in the evening. He says, Rabbi, I'm so busy working. This is after telling me how he's, he has nothing to do at work and he's bored. So I said, like, what does a person live for? A person lives to do mitzvahs. He says to me. Providing for my family is the biggest mitzvah and that's why I go to work and that's for me, that's enough mitzvah for me. And I could read between the lines that when he goes to work he doesn't think about Hashem for a moment. And and listen, I don't want to accuse anybody of anything but it was pretty obvious that that God was not very much of a concern here. That wasn't, you know, in this person's mind being a good husband, father, provider that's... That's life. That's what life's about. How many people tell you life's about family? Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar would say to you, no, life's about God. Family is a mechanism through which you serve Hashem. It is not other or outside of God. Then a fool told me, I only have two things important in my life, God and my family. And he was telling it to me, like, oh God, great I am. God and my family. It's supposed to be only God. It's like this is the big test. This is the big test. The al-Chaim says. Andrea Fish is saying that the video froze. Did it freeze for anybody else? I don't know, it says live here. Not frozen. Okay, good. <laughs> Listen to the words of the Erachayim Hakadosh. The Erachayim in Deuteronomy six, which is of course the Shema. He says on verse, verse six of chapter six. These things that I have commanded you today will be upon your heart. So he says, listen, the Torah is trying to teach something very important over here, namely that Hashem wants us to serve him with our heart. He says there are three things that compete for this attention that God wants us to give him. Sustenance, health, and family. And these are three things that if God forbid we experience deprivation, lack, they get crazy. Devarim elu chashuvim. They're very, very important for him. So Dona Haim says that a yid has to know It's not enough for a person to coerce himself to do what Hashem wants, but not really be enthusiastic, excited, or care about it. Ella, It is in the heart. And if the heart doesn't feel any exuberance, any excitements, And He's not a lover of Hashem. Even if he's forcing himself to do all the right things. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, by the way. On the contrary. Doing the right things is is the right thing to do. And it brings forth those feelings. But having those feelings is very important. And that's why he says, These things, these details that delineate the relationship we have with Hashem, it has to be, <speaking up> Why does it have to be, It has to be, because It has to be on your heart. And on your heart means, yes, you have to be emotionally charged, and enthusiastic, and excited about your Yiddishkeit. <speaking up> you have to continuously, work on implanting these things in your heart. Until so, such point that you engender or give birth to a cheshek, to a tava, to a desire, to a blazing yearning, enthusiasm for spirituality. The yodot's sliba, your heart begins to race. La'avas Hashem. He says, God knows that we all have other competing desires. And the thing that is closest to our heart, we all want to have sustenance. People worry all day about money. But besides that, people want to be fed and quaffed and all those other things. In our heart, we have a tremendous love and care and concern for our families. He says, we have the urge, a man has an urge Towards feminine beauty, and a man falls in love with a woman, and he marries her, and it's a very powerful thing. And you have a family, and and this is becomes a defining hallmark of who you are. And the Urachaim says this is the challenge of Yiddishkeit. The challenge of Yiddishkeit is that this. Should not be what life is about for us. Life should be about serving Hashem. So the person says, "I'm good to my spouse. I'm good to my children." What do you mean? Because I love them. Because I care about them. Because I'm concerned for them. He's not serving Hashem. Bein Bechayyim says, "You missed the point. That's not why you were given the privilege of a family." You're not given the privilege of a family as an alternative to your worship to Hashem, to your purpose in life. Your purpose in life is to serve Hashem. And therefore, you have to be sure that you treat your family well and do everything necessary for the right intentions, for the right reasons, for the best intentions. Because only then, only then is it going to work. We all want to be satisfied, we want our children to love you. we want our children to reciprocate to us, we want our spouse to reciprocate, we want to, we want to be on the same page, we want to be able to enjoy this familial oneness. If you have the best intentions, if you're focused on your responsibilities, on your duties, on your bond with Hashem, on your covenant with Hashem, on your mitzvahs with Hashem, on your directives from Hashem, that's what makes the world a difference. No, I found very interesting. It's an expression which is found in the Sefer Priha Arats. He says like this, and I'm quoting. de Milta. Here is the rule. This is the general principle. Iker hem The main tests in life are in the areas of emuna. We know emuna and Betochen go together. And this is... God needs to know what's in our heart. This is, this is the meaning of living with your family, with Betochen. Betochen means that I trust that I have a purpose, that HaKadosh Baruch has given me a specific mission... And that I have every responsibility to carry out that duty and to be devoted to Hashem Yizbaruch, instead of abusing the privilege of family and making that the object of my worship. By the way, it, I'm just suggesting. I, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't even know if this is the right shot. I think this is the shot. I, I, can't, I can't think of any other pshat. I, don't, I, can't, I can't understand why Rabbeinu B'chayi would use such harsh terminology otherwise. And ultimately, because Hashem gave it to us for that purpose, if we utilize, if you will, our opportunities, our privileges, for the right purposes, with the best intentions, then it'll work. Because it was designed as a privilege. Your marriage is not a burden, Shalom. it's a gift. Your children are not an obligation in a burdensome sense. They are in a, a wonderful, beautiful obligation. An obligation through which you're able to fulfill your destiny. So even though Rabbi Bahaya said earlier that it could be burdensome and it could weigh you down, it can only weigh you down if you do it for the wrong reasons. If you don't have the right intentions. And it seems that of all things, intention makes sense the biggest difference here when it comes to family. The Alter Rebbe in Simon Yud Aleph in a Akredesh which is called lahaskil Chabina it's a very intense epistle letter from the Alter Rebbe. He says that a person should not be like what he calls an idolater serving God in order to have Bona Mezayna that he should have Sustenance. How did they say life, love and liberty? This is if a person is only serving God in order to provide for his family and to give his family good things. So then he's legurmayuavdin. He's serving himself, he's self serving. And he says that one's spouse and children are deeply connected to a person. It's very close to a person. And therefore, when a person experiences negativity in this area of life, it could be a very painful thing. He says, a person who has faith in Hashem, a person who's committed to, to having trust in Hashem, knows that whatever happens, happens for a reason, and even things are bad. If he is rebellious, shows anger, frustration against Hashem, he's like the Erev Rav, like the mixed multitude. He's self-serving. It's an Zoharic expression. He says, living like a non-Jew me, "Love yourself. He's worried about material life, bonnet, family, being a provider. He it says, "It's nature. A person is bound up, so to speak with his wife and with his children. And that's where the test is. So I think this is the shot. I don't know. Finishing off now, in Rebbeinu B'chaya, back in the Shara he says, If he has the best intentions, only the best intentions, then God will help him. He will receive, so to speak, that, the reward, or that which he seeks in this world. In other words, the family will want to reciprocate. The children will want to please him. The Hashem will put his praise in their mouths. The he will elevate. Hashem will elevate your stature in their eyes. And most importantly, you will ultimately attain the true reward or the great reward in Ilum Haba. As God said to King Solomon, and this is found in the Book of Kings, Volume 1, Chapter 3, Verse 13. Literally, and even that which you did not request, I have granted you even riches and honor. So in the beginning of Shlomo HaMelech's reign, God appears to him. And he says to Shlomo, no, so what do you want? You know all those jokes with the genie that pops out of a bottle? That's a real thing. No genie, Hashem. Hashem says, what do you want? Make a wish. Shlomo doesn't ask for riches and honor. He asks to be able to rule with wisdom and sensitivity. And God is very pleased. And he says, even though he didn't ask for riches and honor like the average monarch, I'm going to give it to you anyway. So we see that it's, if a person is not looking for that, Hashem gives it to him. That's, that's basically what he says. You know, if you, if you take a look in the, the Kiyad book, he sums it up this way. When King Solomon was first crowned, he offered a prayer to God. He asked for an understanding heart with which to rule over the people. God responded, by telling him that since he did not ask for long life, wealth and honor, or the like, he would be rewarded with wealth and honor as well. Now, in the God edition, they write like this. This verse is cited as proof that a person does good with a motive of gaining materiality, God doesn't fulfill his wishes. However, when he does so without the right motives, God rewarded him with material good as well. You know, with all due respect, That's not what it says. It says, If this is a proof that when you do the right thing, for the right reasons, that you receive reward in this world, then the verse should have been before the commentary on the reward in the world to come. But instead he said, He's going to raise them up and their stature is going to make them, make them great in their eyes and so on and so forth. Very nice. Beautiful. Now prove it. The proof? King Solomon didn't look for it and God gave it to him anyway. I do not really see that that's a proof. That's what King Solomon had. Who says it's always going to be that way? Okay, even if we're to understand the verse of King Solomon, this is a rule. If you do the right thing for the right reasons, if you're looking... For that which is non-selfish, non ulterior you'll get even what's good for you too. Okay, fine. But then he says, He's talking about the world to come, and I'm saying, about the world to come. How does this Pasuk from, from, from Malachim prove the world to come? He didn't say you're getting the world to come. He said, I'm going to give you gamma Sheva cover." He didn't say gamma Ilum Haba. He didn't say I'm giving you Garden of Eden Paradise. I'm pulling my hair out. I don't understand this. I my Mishnah don't understand. Like, I don't understand this. So first of all, I still don't understand it. But anyway, here's going to be my suggestion. you got to something, Epis. The Rambam, and this is found in his commentary on the Mishnah. On the But it's um, maybe a little more concise in the laws of Chuva the end of the book of knowledge, the Ramam says that the reward for mitzvahs is chayyoh mm-hmm. elohimavo—that's eternity, paradise. He says this is the meaning of Deuteronomy 22: will be good for you; and you'll have length of days." Length of days means a different, different kind of day—a qualitative length, which isn't longer at the end; it's, it's different quality. So the Ramah himself asks, so what about all the promises that the Torah gives? If that's not the reward, why does the Torah promise that if you'll do A, B, or C, then good things will happen to you? The Ramah says like this. He says, if a person is going to do the right thing, so then, Hashem is going to remove all of the things that get in the way. And He's going to provide you with all kinds of opportunity to do mitzvot. As the Rebbe once explained, the greatest reward for a mitzvah is a mitzvah. That's what the Mishnah says. What does that mean? And he said, the greatest reward for a mitzvah is the opportunity to do more mitzvahs. So the Rambam says... What we're being told is, "If we'll do what Hashem wants with a sense of joy, an inner commitment, Hashem will take away the things that can disturb or impede our involvement in Torah mitzvahs, like Khaili, like illness, like machoma, like war, God forbid, like famine. He'll give us all the goodness." which strengthen our hand so we can do the Torah like satiation, like peace like a endless wealth and affluence we'll have to worry about material things keeping body and soul together we'll be able to spend our time pursuing wisdom engaged in mitzvahs That's the Raman's approach. Very interestingly, the Barbanel, in the beginning of Parshas Bechokosai, he asks a whole slew of questions as he is wont to. The first question, he says, what does this mean? What are these promises of the Torah? And he says... That there is an opinion. This is the opinion of the great Rambam. That, that real reward and punishment is entirely spiritual. It's Magiel nefesh. This is a, a beautiful bliss that comes to the soul. In the world of Neshamot. The Al Mitzvot. Echoing in the sentiment of our sages. He says reward for Mitzvot in this world doesn't exist. So, what about the Tovot and the Ra'ot and that are found in the Book of the Covenant and the Torah? They are Bilvad, Hasoras, Hamonim. They are only the removal of obstacles. Hashem will distance from us the things a person wants to be able to attain his own perfection, so to speak. He wants to be able to exhaust the possibilities that Hashem has given him. Hashem has given him a brilliant mind and he could study so much Torah, except he's so busy wasting his mind on keeping body and soul together and counting pennies and barely surviving. He doesn't have time to study Torah. So he's not able to self-actualize. Shlem in modern psychology or psychological language means self-actualization. These are things that stop a person from achieving that self-actualization. But if you do mitzvahs... By the way, for a Jew, self-actualization can only be found in Yiddishkeit. Self means the Yid and the Shomer. Without Yiddishkeit, you cannot self-actualize. You can self-actualize your human persona or your human dimension, but your godly dimension cannot be self-actualized unless you involve yourself in godly things. So he says, the person says in Tasa, the tishma mitzvot. God is saying to the person, if you keep my mitzvot, I am going to remove from you anything which gets in the way. So you can further spiritually self-actualize. And if you won't keep my mitzvot, I'll show you that it doesn't pay. And this is the opinion, he says, the great Rambam, in his commentary the Mishnah, in Sanhedrin Perakhelech, and in the book of Mada, the Kli sums up these words of the Rambam also by simply saying, "Eilu haYudom einan iker haschar." It's not the real reward. All these good things should be No, that's it. He uses the language almost verbatim of the mitzvah. You do my mitzvahs. I'll take away the horrible stuff like wars, like, like, like soldiers, like hunger, like agony, anxiety. Take all that away. I'll do it in a way that you will be able to lave the Hashem below Shum mona. You could serve God without anything impeding. <laughs> the main reward is Muhammad. So I don't know. So, so I'm thinking that maybe the Pshat here, by the way, that everyone said it's in a Sikh and Chil I think. Everyone said that the, the beauty of symmetry is that when a person serves Hashem, the perfection, the self actualization is even achieved in the realm of the physical. It's like achieved on every realm possible, even the realm of the physical part of the perfection of the picture, part of the symmetry. So at any rate, I think this is what's going on. Shlomo HaMelech, he didn't ask for riches. Why? Really, he wanted riches, but he said, hmm, you know, I'm going to ask instead. I'll try to buy God off. Who are you fooling? So really, he didn't care about that. There's a famous chassid of the Altar Ebo, his name is Yubi Amin and Altarebbe wanted to bless him with a long life. And he said to Altarebbe, okay, but on condition that uh, I'm with it. I don't want to live a long life. see. So he wants to bless him with wealth. He says, no, 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 I don't want wealth. Wealth." One of the great chassidim. He said, no, 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 no. Don't give me wealth. Wealth is going to disturb me from serving Hashem. Can't be there. He was a wealthy man. One of the chassidim. And then he said to him, I want to bless you with long life. He says, okay, okay, but not like, you know, like uh, be a checked out of my mind, you know, one of these, like uh, live a long life, but but you're not there. He says, not when I can't daven, I can't learn. If I, if I have a long life, I have, to, I have to have my marbles together, I got to have my cylinders fired. Funny thing, but ever comes, you're a bracha, and you're making conditions. So the thing is this for, for that great chassid, living a life without davening, that's not life. That's not what life's about. Living a life a learning Torah, that's not life. It's not a life you wanted. That's existing, it's not living. Shlomo said riches, which is not life. Life is fulfilling my destiny, life is fulfilling my purpose. My self actualization is to have the wisdom to rule with compassion and sensitivity and justice. That's what he really wants so what does hashem say he said, going to give you riches and wealth why why the Rama would tell you that by giving shlomo HaMelech the riches and the wealth shlomo HaMelech would have the ability to do the mitzvahs so that he could merit Elam and if this is the pshat maybe this is the pshat he says he merits haba because because this reward to shlomo HaMelech was not about the physical things he didn't ask for those things if he wanted them god said what do you want you know when you get asked the question by God, "What do you want?", you're going to say the truth. There was a certain candidate for the presidency of the United States who went to the hotel, and he gave this beautiful, highfalutin uh, note in the wall, and supposedly somebody pulled it out by mistake. I don't believe it, and he didn't ask to win the election. He asked for wisdom and spirituality, and I call bluff. If I was running for president and I believed that going to Dakota was meaningful and I didn't expect somebody to take my note at and say, oh, look at this guy, he's a really uh, sterling soul, I'd put, please let me win the presidency. I would uh, make it look, you know, so that I could serve, as they all say. Like if you have a moment, you can, you can ask for what you really want. There's not a time to, to suddenly uh, become humble and wax pious. Shlomo HaMelech really didn't care at this point about riches and wealth. That's the truth. So why did Hashem give it to him? I think Rabin Bechaya is following this line of the Rambam. He says, He gave him the riches and wealth so he could get to Ilom Haba. Now, unfortunately, Shlomo HaMelech at some point doesn't work out that way exactly because it's a big test, all this riches and wealth. And it can become a bridge to heaven and it can become the vehicle, the mechanism or convention through which you're able to self-actualize or chas v'shalom and can bring us down. At any rate, my dear friends, this is what I have. To, that's what I got. I don't know if this is the right shot. It's a difficult, difficult piece to understand. But if, if, I, if this is pshat, we can see that family is a gift and a privilege. And it's a, it's a duty and an obligation that we execute and discharge our responsibilities towards our spouse and children in the best way we can. And Hashem is ultimately testing us. This is the big test of life. And it can become a marvelous launching pad for closeness to Hashem and bring about the transformation of the world as it should be the Diribut Achtoinim or Chas It can become a red herring, a diversion. And um, a tragic loss of opportunity, even if you're a good husband and a good wife and a good mother and a good father and all those other good things. If you aren't doing it right, if you aren't using it with the best intentions for Avedis Hashem, you might actually miss the point. Anyway, Hashem should give us wisdom, Hashem should give us wherewithal. And we should do the right thing with the best intentions. And we should be to have peace and happiness in our families, nachas from our children. We should be zoich, we should merit to self-actualize as Avde Hashem, serving Hashem, and ultimately be privileged to bring about the geulah shleima. to actualize the presence of Hashem in this world with the coming of Mashiach, Bemheira Ubi amenu, Amein. Thank you so much for joining. Have a beautiful day. Come again soon.